Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, so lovely to, to see you all to, together, apart from there are a couple of kind of gaps, strangely, um, amongst us. But let's fill those gaps in. Let's be a bigger congregation. So praise the Lord. We, we gathered here together. My name is Stephen. I'm a member of the church. been a member for about a year, something like that. And it's a real privilege to share God's word with you today. And today is going to be a little bit of a continuation from, from Ray's word last week. Not by design. It's only because he was preaching on Acts chapter 1. And what I felt for us today was Acts chapter 2. So that's kind of fairly logical. Carry on going. Maybe next week is Acts chapter 3. Who knows? Uh, I don't really know. But um, also, before I begin, I just kind of want to bring greetings from the, the church in Turkey. Uh, we, as a family, were able to visit uh, Turkey for a couple of weeks in August. And we went to uh, a church family camp. And it was great. It was absolutely fantastic. Like a church weekend away kind of thing. Brothers and sisters, we haven't seen for many years, but we were really encouraged to see the church going on with God. And they had 21 people baptized. It was pretty cool. Uh, they kind of lost count. I was like, is it 18? Is it 21? And the, the lead elder, who knows how many people. It's like, it's like chaos in Turkey as things are. But it was so encouraging. And of a special encouragement for me, there was one lady there called Sibel who was getting baptized. And when you, uh, if you go to Turkey, there are special phrases that they use. When you come to a house, they say, Hosh Geldners, welcome to the house. And they also say that when people get baptized, Hosh Geldners, welcome, welcome to the church. But this one lady in particular, she, uh, we'd, we'd known her back in the day, like six years ago or something, when we, when we were living in Turkey. She'd come to our home group and stuff like that. And now, there she is, getting baptized. So we'd known her as a friend, and there she is, baptized as a sister. So we, we just rejoice in what God was doing. It was a really good time. Now, today, what I want to do with you, if you're, if you're up for it, is something like a spiritual MOT, if that's, if that's uh, agreeable to you. A spiritual checkup. Uh, you take your, your car to the garage, you take yourself to the doctor, and you generally check yourself up. So look at this sermon as a spiritual MOT, and I will be done by 12 o'clock, so you can watch your watches if you wish to. So a little bit of a background for where we're going. So Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. He's buried. He's resurrected. And then what happens next is he appears to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And There are different numbers of people that he appears to. Sometimes as many as 500 people are gathered together. And then he ascends to heaven and he's gone. So 40 days, but then we have another 10 days. Another 10 days and in this 10-day period, we see that there are 120 people gathering in prayer, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So 40 and 10 makes 50 from Passover through to the, the feast of the ingathering is Pentecost, and there the Holy Spirit is given. And that was uh, Ray's sermon last week, so listen to the rest of that if you want. And now I'm going to continue. So uh, Peter stands up, he preaches to the crowd, and then from verse 37 to 47 should appear on the screen. So, now when they heard this, the people listening, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent 
And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, this is a bit harsh, but be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Exciting. What have we got here? We have got a church that starts off as 120, and at the end of the day, it's 3,120. This is a growing church, a growing church. Now, we do have the building over there, but I think our capacity is not even, well, it's, not, it's not that. <laughs> but we have this growing church, and this is kind of key for us because as part of the vision statement of Emmanuel, we do envisage that we are a growing community. The building over there will be opened. It's going to happen. And this church here will be insufficient in size. We will be a growing community. And yet, the point that I really want to emphasize today is that, and you know this as well, the church is not the building. It is not the building. It's really useful that we have that building. We are praying that the Lord will give it. There are obstacles God will deal with them. We will be in there. But it is not, the, the building is not the church. We here as this body are the church. If we miss that, if we think, oh, we have this big building, we are a big church, we, we're missing something very fundamental. Because God has no sympathy for big buildings. One really nice building, maybe you visited, is called the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Justinian made it, 500 A.D., People visited that building. They said, oh, this is heaven on earth, they said. People were visiting. And now it's a mosque. Now, the thing is, it's a great building, but God has no sympathy for big buildings. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? He, he will not spare a church that is dying and has gone and has left its lampstand. God has no sympathy in that way. The issue is, for us, we are a body of people. And the question that I want us to be asking for our MOT is, what are we committed to? What are we devoted to? This building, that building, whatever building, what are we committed to? What are we devoted to? Because in this early church, we have this lovely little phrase, which is in verse 42, and it says this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in the Greek, it uses a definite article. The fellowship the breaking of bread, and the prayers. These four elements were so important for the early church. And I want to suggest, if it's really important for the early church, maybe we should be paying some attention ourselves 
and using this as, as a plumb line for our own life corporately and as a plumb line for ourselves individually. Are these things something that we are devoted to? Because that word devoted, it, it carries a lot of connotations, doesn't it? You know, if you ever watch some crime dramas or, or stuff like that, and people are investigating uh, some money that's gone missing, they'll use the phrase, follow the money, right? You've heard that before? Follow the money. You follow the money, you find the criminal at the end of it, whoever that is. I think we can find out what we are devoted to, not by following the money, but by following our time. Where is my time going? Now, many of us here, we're working, we're in full-time jobs, and, and, and our time is already gone in that respect. Eight o'clock, you're out, maybe you're back at six, and you have some time in the evening. Or if you have a small child, you're up at five, and maybe you're asleep at eight, and then you're like, you have half an hour of life left in you before you're asleep. But that time also will pass. (laughs) But the question is, with the time that we have left over, when we strip aside eating and drinking and breathing, uh, what do we do with this time? Where are we giving ourselves to? That is our point of devotion. And for these guys, their point of devotion were these four elements. And they, they met together in a big place in the temple. They met together in a little place from home to home. I think it's an easy translation for us to think this is our big place. This is our temple where we come together. And then there are small places where we also come together. The Emmanuel communities that we are all encouraging you to be a part of. But what's the first thing? The first thing was the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching was really Jesus' teaching. Because they have been, these apostles, they've been with Jesus for three years. They've lived with him. They've followed him. They've seen what he's done. They've, they've seen his reaction, his response. They've heard that teaching again and again and again and again. So they've probably got to a point where they've really memorized it, to be honest. Because if you take the Gospel of Mark, for instance, you sit down, you read it out loud, you'll finish it in a couple of hours. So this three-year period, it is again and again and again. So they know it. Add in the Holy Spirit, who's going to lead them into all truth. And suddenly their eyes are open. They can look into the Old Testament. Ah, here is Jesus. Here is Jesus. This is Jesus. And so... For us, when we come to the apostles' teaching, really what we have is this, the Bible. That's our manual of apostolic doctrine. So what, what is it? Why are they devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, to be really obvious, because they want to know Jesus better. Yeah, They want to know him. They want to know what drives him. They want to know his heart. What is Jesus' heart? It is gentle and humble at heart. And yet, this gentle and humble Jesus also is angry on occasion. Why is he angry? He's not angry. He's not really angry at sinners. He's angry at people who are hard of heart, who resist him. He's angry at the Pharisees that try and put people away and stop people getting to him. He's the kind of person that would go into a temple and make a whip and you know, cast everyone out. That is also the kind of Jesus that we read about here. And they wanted to know him, not because they were trying to get a diploma or, uh, or a degree or something. Sorry for the theology students amongst us. Now, I have studied theology too, but it is a trap if the only thing that you want at the end of it 
is something on your wall. If the only thing you, I, or you, I know all about Jesus, as if he's like a butterfly pinned to a board, or if he's something under a microscope you examine. Now that is a trap that Jesus himself recognized. He said, oh yeah, he says, you study the scriptures, but you don't come to me to know me. So don't get me wrong. It's good to study theology. Study it well, Megan. Study it well. But study it to know him. Don't study it for something on your wall that will gather dust. Who cares about that? They wanted to know him. They wanted to draw near. They know him. It's like uh, this analogy has been used before, but I want to know my wife. And I'm married to her. I've been married for many years, but do I know her enough? No, I want to know her more. I want to know her more. So, of course, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. But this apostles' teaching taught them how to live as well, not just about Jesus, but about themselves. And, and this is where it gets provocative, because everyone that comes to Christ has come from the world. There is no, you know, you're not born into the kingdom of God apart from being born again. Everyone is in the world. And when we come to Christ from the world, we come inhabiting, we've swum in a river that has taught us different things. And we've, we've drunk that water. We're so accustomed to it. And yet we come to Christ and suddenly, hang on a second, we're coming against a brick wall of something entirely different. And it, brothers and sisters, that should not be a surprise because we're talking about two different kingdoms. We're talking about the kingdom of the world is here from which we are born into. The kingdom of God is there, there from which we are transferred into. And therefore, there is going to be a difference, fundamental differences. So why are, we, are we surprised when we come against the apostles' teaching on, on issues of money? Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Hang on a second. What are you saying? You're saying I need to give away all my money? Well, maybe you do. Jesus did say that to a couple of people. Sell everything. Give to the poor. To others, he said these different things. What about the apostolic teaching on marriage? Jesus says, from the beginning, he made them male and female. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees didn't like that. It was a challenge to them. Because they were, the idea was for them, it's quite nice to be able to divorce my wife freely. And he's saying no. What about image? What does Jesus say about image? Well, he says to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they appear beautiful. Inside, you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, maybe that's Facebook for us. On the outside, we're very nice. <laughs> but inside, full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. But when we hear this apostolic teaching that is different from where we've come from, we're confronted by it. The next question is, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Will we obey it? Or will we think, yeah, no. Or are we pick and mix? Well, I have this bit of Jesus' teaching. This bit, no, no. no I'm going to leave that aside. It is a challenge to us because this is where we've come from. We've heard things all our life that's entirely different to what Jesus is teaching. And so it's a shock. 
But what about the, what did Peter do when he was preaching? Well, Acts 2.41 says, those who had received his word were baptized. Now, lots of people heard Peter preaching. Those who received the word, those were the ones that were baptized. So we hear this apostolic teaching. Some of us will say, not for me. And some will say, yes, I'll take action. I'll, I'll leave my life differently. Just one illustration, because this is, um, it affects all of our lives. We should be looking for moments of repentance. So I remember, this is years ago, but it still sums up things nicely. I was in Istanbul, uh, a student, very thin, uh, same height, and different hair. And then I remember I would go to, uh, to get a kebab from a certain kebab shop every lunch. Turkish kebabs, different kind of level to English kebabs. And I went there one day. And I, I was in a rush. I was going to a Turkish lesson. I went in and I handed a, let's call it a 10 lira bill to the guy. He was in a muddle as well. He returns me back change for a 20. And then off he goes. And so I'm left with this extra change. Split seconds. And I walk up with the extra change in my pocket. Days go by. And there's this niggling problem. This kind of conviction of sin. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, okay. I know what I'll do. Great solution. I have this extra money from this guy. I will give it to the church. That will sort it. Give it to the church. So I give away this extra money. Still have this conviction of sin. It's not working. <laughs> and I realize that the only thing that is going to work for me to repent, to be obedient to this teaching throughout the New Testament of money is to get back there to the kebab guy and to tell him what I've done. And so, trembling, I go back to this kebab guy when it's fairly quiet, and I say, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was a couple of weeks by then, a couple of weeks ago, this is even worse. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, you gave me, um, I gave you a 10, you gave me change for a 20, here is the extra change. So I, I gave it to the church, I give it again. <laughs> And he's like, oh, that's perfectly fine, he says. Happens all the time. And I walked out flying, (laughs) flying. Because we put into practice that which we learn. It's not enough to like, oh, yeah, I know these things. Really good theory. Back to the theology students again. Sorry, it's pretty critical. (laughs) Great theory, great theory. Do this, do that. No, no, we have to live it. We live it out. All right. That was the apostles' teaching. Sorry to be a bit elongated, but... What's the next thing they're devoted to? Fellowship. Fellowship. Being together. Having things in common. We see what they do have in common. They're they're selling their houses, selling their land. That seems quite extravagant. But the issue of fellowship for the church is so important. Because the images that we have of of living stones, one next to each other, or of a body, a hand, and a head, and arms, whatever, they're images of different things together. Now, all of you, you are different people, but we are together here. We are one community. Not surprising, because God says earlier, it's not good for man to live alone. He, the issue of community is in the heart of the Bible. And this is really important to be in community, to be devoted to fellowship, because we encounter God through one another. We do encounter God in the worship. We want that. We encounter God through one another as well. When we go and have coffee, I pray, let there be God encounters. 
there, in your conversations with one another. As you ask someone, how was your week? And you ask them again, how was your week? You ask them twice. And you find out, oh, God has done this in my life this week. Or someone else, you ask them, how are you? And I'm struggling. Let's pray. We need to be in a position whereby we share our lives genuinely, where we can be transparent with one another. The struggles that we have. I'm addicted to this. Can you pray? I'm stuck in this relationship. It's destructive. Can you pray? I don't know what to do. Can you help me? You know, uh, Paul was aware that the Jerusalem church was in struggling. It was in poverty. There was a famine. And I'm sure he did pray, oh, Lord, provide their needs. He also organized a collection. (laughs) He also, he wrote to the churches that he was apostolically looking after, the Macedonians, the Corinthians. He wrote to them and said, hey, guys, I would like you to consider these people and give to them, if you don't mind. A bit more nuance in it than that. Do you see what I mean? We can pray, yes, Lord, provide. And we know miracles do happen, but miracles also happen through one another. You you know, someone's homeless, you've got a spare room, that's a good thing. You can pray, oh, Lord, Lord, please provide. You know, it's the story of someone praying for someone's, they're on a roof and there's a flood and they're praying for help. The helicopter comes, the boat comes, and then they drown. And God says, I sent a helicopter, I sent a boat. What were you doing? So, Within the church, within the church, we provide the needs one for another. You know, uh, when Paul was preaching in in Corinth, he was afraid, he was lonely. The Lord appears to him in a vision and encourages him, says, don't be afraid, keep on speaking. But he's also encouraged when he's in prison, when Epaphroditus comes to stay, risking his life in the process. He's encouraged when he's in another prison, he wants Timothy He writes to him. He says, I long to see you, even as I recall your tears, that I may be filled with joy. I want to see you, Timothy. Do you see the kind of depth of fellowship that's here? And the challenge that we have, and I say this guardedly, as a Western church, is to embrace our relationships really deeply and sincerely. Because, and I I think this is the issue, we're not really under pressure as a Western church. When a church is under pressure, they value fellowship all the more. When someone becomes a Christian, and to become a Christian, they face risking losing their job, losing their family, losing other stuff. Suddenly, at that point, they've lost things. The church becomes their family, and they they embrace it. They jump into it. They dive into it. They love that fellowship. But whereas in the West... We go to church, we don't go to church. There's, there's little loss, do you see? And yet, the aspiration that we have as Emmanuel is to be that church where we are devoted to one another, where we genuinely love one another. The, just touching on the, the giving thing, you know, you notice they give their fields. People are selling their fields. People are, people are selling their houses. It is a voluntary thing. They're not pushed. They're not obligated. It's not like if we have a caravan that we're going to go take someone's keys for that caravan out of their hands, not looking at <laughs> people. People will give their caravans voluntarily if they wish to. <laughs> but the thing is, we, we, it's easier to give the more we know one another, isn't it? You know someone, you trust them, you love them. 
is easy to give to that person. Where the relations are a bit more distant, there's a bit more suspicion. Yeah, they can sort themselves out. They can find their own way kind of thing, right? But when we get near to one another, we know each other's needs. We're, We're much more willing to kind of meet those needs, genuinely. But our fellowship isn't, it's an advert to the world, brothers and sisters. Jesus promised, he said, well, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. People know, don't they? You know, you know a church that's kind of dead on the inside and no one cares and they're backstabbing each other. That kind of church is no advertisement to Christ. But the opposite, yeah, it is. People come in, what have you got? I remember doing evangelism once in Leeds. We were doing open-air evangelism, a big group of people, and people were watching us from the local estate. And later they came back. Some, we heard that they were asking the question, oh, you must be on drugs. All of you are on drugs. You're so happy together. Uh, you must be on drugs. But they were watching. They saw how we were. But the other challenge with fellowship, brothers and sisters, is people come in. People come in. And when they come in, we have this kind of strange, like, we want really tight relationships. We need to know one another, but we also need an openness to include new ones. It must be the case. It's such a difficult thing when you come into a new church, new job, new anything, really. Uh, you go to a new school, and you're like, you're the new one, aren't you? You're wandering around the corridors, the poor year sixes coming into church. Oh, where do I go? What do I do? New job for me the other day. Where do I go? What do I do? Same kind of feeling. It's like 30 years later or whatever. Something stupid. But, but when people come into church, it's the same thing. Because they are very unfamiliar. They don't know who anyone is. They don't know what relationships are there for them. We must be, we have our tight relationships, but we are open. This guy is 120 people that knew Jesus for three years. Suddenly they're open to 3,000 people. Newbies coming in. People that last month were calling for Jesus to die. Those are the people that came into the church. And yet they welcomed them in. And they taught them, devoted to fellowship. What else? Number three. They were devoted to breaking of bread. Now this doesn't explicitly say communion. Chances are it is. Because later on in the book of Acts, in 26, when Paul is in Troas, we read this verse. It says, on the first day of the week, they gathered together to break bread. The first day of the week being Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. That's when they gather together. So clearly, I would argue, it's the same kind of thing. Why is this so important? Get baptized once, we take communion hundreds, thousands of times, because it draws us back. It draws us back to the fact that we are not righteous at all. We have no righteousness upon which to stand. Here is our righteousness. Jesus died for our sins upon the cross. And those sins, we wrestle with them, but they come up again and again and again and again. And yet there is forgiveness again and again and again and again. It draws us back. It's like it it holds us. A lasso that brings us. But the other thing about doing communion pretty regularly is this. It, It sorts out our relationships. Here's a nice crossover to fellowship. Because... Uh, Jesus taught, he said, you know, if you're going to offer your gift at the temple and you remember that your brother has something against you, go and leave that gift, sort yourself out, and then go and offer your, offer your sacrifice. And the early church interpreted that as communion. When you take communion, you sort out your relationships first. 
Now, there's no law that says we should take communion every week. We're not under law, are we? We're under grace. However much we take it, it's a good thing, in my opinion, because it presses us to sort our relationships out. It presses us to think, I am not righteous. There is God's righteousness. Praise the Lord. I'm saved by his grace. It is a great teacher to us all. Our last point. So let's reiterate, just to check that everyone is still awake. John, you are awake because you're standing up. Okay, what's our first one? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to? They were devoted to? And lastly, they were devoted to? Prayer. They were devoted, a church that was devoted to prayer. How cool is that? When you look through Luke, when you look through Acts, you see the church really was devoted to prayer. They were praying all the time. I mean, how did this thing start? It started with a 10-day-long prayer meeting. We think that we're, we're really hard when we pray for an hour or two. 10 days? 10 days? They're praying for 10 days. Maybe they had breaks. I don't know. But they were praying a lot. And later, when, they, when they're persecuted, their response is to pray. Interestingly, what do they pray for? They didn't pray for the persecution to stop. They pray that God would give them strength to stand up and to speak boldly, to keep on going for it. When, when James has been executed, when Peter is in prison, what do they do? They pray. They pray all night. They pray all night. And uh, Paul, who probably was in Jerusalem at the time, he's learned that lesson. So later when he's in prison with Silas, what do they do? They pray. They pray all night. You know, the rest of the New Testament gives us these exhortations. Devote yourself to prayer in Colossians 4.2. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Now, we know we should pray. They were devoted, but it can be a bit hard, can it not? So just two tips for prayer. First of all, it's good to pray in tongues. It's good to pray in tongues. Because I don't know what to pray for, but my spirit prays. And that is a great thing, because often I really don't know what to pray for. I just no idea. And so praying in tongues is a great thing. How, maybe you haven't got the gift of tongues. We can pray that you do. Or just keep on asking. Keep on seeking the Lord. Sometimes it takes a little while to kind of get it for whatever to click into place. But it's a great gift to use. Pray in tongues. Another one. Pray in Psalms. Pray in Psalms. I thought that went quite well, actually. Pray in tongues, pray in Psalms. It's some, not quite alliteration, but it sounds pretty similar. The Psalms, they used to be referred to as the book of prayers, interestingly, at the end of Psalm 72. And often we can, I'm not saying be liturgical here, but it's sometimes helpful to steal someone else's prayers and to pray them out. <laughs> I don't know what to pray. I can pray in tongues. I don't know what to pray. I can pray in Psalms. Funny thing is, the psalmists, they had no reluctance about stealing one another's psalms either. Uh, if you look at Psalm 14, Psalm 53, very similar psalms. Someone was looking at someone else. But just to kind of close, I want to can give you a little a couple of snippets. Uh, I'm reading the psalms really slowly at the moment. I came to the conclusion that I don't know the psalms at all. Like, I've been Christian for ages but I need to read these things slowly. I'm going to read them slowly, 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 slowly until I kind of get them in my heart. And it's, it's really good. Good stuff in here. How do you like this one? Psalm 70. Oh Lord, hasten to deliver me. Hasten to my help. Let those be ashamed and humiliated who seek my life. 
Let those be turned back in dishonor to delight in my hurt. Let those be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. Okay. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. I'm afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You're my help and my deliverer. Oh Lord, don't delay. Good thing to pray. If you, if you don't know what to, got nothing else to pray. What about this one? A uh, little snippet from Psalm 71, 17. Oh God, you've taught me from my youth and I'll still declare your wondrous deeds. Even when I'm old and gray, oh God, don't forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to those who are to come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches to the heavens. You've done great things. And what about this last one? And I'll finish here. Psalm 72, 4 to 7. This is interesting. It's a, it's, it's, it seems to be written for Solomon for an, on, a, on an enthronement. So we take that and we think King Jesus. So think of that. King Jesus, Psalm 72. Let them fear you while the earth... Oh, hang on. Sorry, let me start that here. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. You pray that? Crush the oppressor. Good thing to pray. Let them fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. And this lovely verse. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Isn't that what we want? Want King Jesus? Oh, Lord, come down. Come down like showers upon the earth. Refresh us like, like spring rain. Come down, Lord. Oh, I didn't make this up. This is in Psalm 72. <laughs> you, do you see what I mean? We, can, we need to be inspired by our prayers. I, I want us to be rich in our prayers. And that means going, for me anyway, going somewhere else, because I'm not that rich myself. <laughs> not that creative. I haven't got all those ideas. My, my vocabulary for prayer is kind of limited. And yet, open up the Psalms, and here it is. I can pray for all sorts of stuff. I pray, oh, King Jesus... King Jesus, crush the oppressor upon this earth. Wouldn't have thought about it. It says so in Psalm 72. So here's our MOT, brothers and sisters. What have we got? Number one, they were devoted to? They were devoted to? They were devoted to? They were devoted to? These good things to us to reflect on, to ask. But in all of this, um, if you're feeling um, I'm useless at fellowship, I don't like breaking bread or whatever it is, if we're falling short, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. We are saved by grace. God's plan is to transform us, to change us, to renew our lives. Let me pray. And then I think, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. I'll, I'll leave that with Ian. Ian can wonder about this in the next couple of minutes. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you, Lord, for your church 2,000 years ago, the things that they loved, the things they gave their time to. And Lord, I pray, help us. Lord, where our priorities are all mixed up and maybe none of these things we're really devoted to. Oh God, help us. Lord, we wish to be. And we pray that you would strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.